Section 96 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 5 The Great Tomb. Gilliatt followed the water's edge, passed rapidly into St. Pierre Port, then set out again for St. Sampson along the seashore, shunning encounters, avoiding the roads, which were full of peasants through his achievement. As the reader knows, he had long had a way of his own, of traversing the country in every direction without being seen by anyone. He knew the paths. He had made for himself isolated and winding routes. He had the wild habits of the being who feels himself disliked. He held aloof. He had taken this turn when a small child, on receiving the scant welcome in the faces of men, and it had afterwards become his instinct to remain apart. He passed the esplanade, then the salerie. From time to time he turned round and looked behind him at the roadstead, and at the cashmere which had just set sail. There was but little wind. Gilliatt went faster than the cashmere. Gilliatt walked along the rocks on the extreme edge of the water with bowed head. The flood tide was beginning to rise. At a certain moment he halted, and, turning his back to the sea, he gazed for several minutes at a clump of oak-trees beyond the rocks which concealed the road of Laval. They were the oaks of the spot called the Basse-Maison. There, in days gone by, Derichette's finger had written his name, Gilliatt, on the snow. That snow had melted long ago. He pursued his path. The day was more charming than any that there had hitherto been that year. There was something nuptial about the morning. It was one of those spring days when Maine lavishes herself wholly. Creation seems to have no other object than to give itself a festival and to make its own happiness. Beneath all the sounds of the forest, as well as of the village, of the wave, as well as of the atmosphere, there was a sound of cooing. The first butterflies were alighting on the first roses. All was new in nature, the grasses, the mosses, the leaves, the perfumes, the rays. It seemed as though the sun had never shone thus before. The pebbles were freshly washed. The profound song of the trees was sung by birds born yesterday. It is probable that their eggshells broken by their tiny beaks, still lay in the nest. Newly-fledged birds rustled among the trembling branches. They were singing their first song. They were winging their first flight. There was a sweet chatter of all at once. Hoopoos, tomtits, woodpeckers, goldfinches, bullfinches, sparrows, and thrushes. The lilacs, lilies of the valley, Daphne's wisteria formed an exquisite mixture in the ditches. A very pretty water lentil, which grows at Guernsey, covered the pools with a carpet of emerald. The wagtails and apple-tree strippers, who make such pretty little nests, were bathing in them. Through the gaps in the vegetation the blue sky was visible. Some wanton clouds were pursuing each other in the azure with nymph-like undulations. One fancied that 
one felt the passage of kisses wafted by invisible mouths not an old wall but what had its bouquet of wallflowers like a bridegroom the plum-trees were in blossom the cytosus bushes were in blossom white piles which shone and yellow piles which sparkled were visible through the interlacing branches the spring cast all its silver and all its gold into the immense basket of the foliage the new shoots were all of a fresh green cries of welcome were heard in the air it was the moment of the swallow's arrival the clusters of firs bordered the slopes of the hollow roads while waiting for the clusters of the hawthorn the beautiful and the pretty were good neighbors the superb was completed by the graceful the great did not embarrass the little not a note of the concert was lost microscopic magnificences were in their own plane in the vast universal beauty all was distinguishable as in limpid water everywhere a divine fullness of a mysterious swelling allowed one to guess at the violent and unseen effort of the sap at work that which shone shone more that which loved became more loving there was something of the hymn in the flower and of radiance in the noise the great diffuse harmony was expanding that which is beginning to dawn invited that which is beginning to gush forth an impulse which came from below and which came also from on high moved hearts vaguely susceptible as they are to the scattered and subterranean influence of germs the flower gave obscure promise of fruit every virgin meditated the reproductions of beings designed by the immense soul of the gloom was roughly outlined in the irradiation of things betrothal was going on everywhere there were marriages without end life which is the female united with the infinite which is the male the weather was beautiful light warm through the hedges in the enclosures laughing and playing children could be seen some of them were playing hopscotch the apple trees peach trees cherry trees and pear trees covered the orchards with their heaps of pale or crimson tufts in the grass cowslips periwinkles yarrow daisies hyacinths amaryllis violets and veronicas blue borage and yellow iris warmed with those pretty little pink stars which always flourish in a troop and which for that reason are called the companions creatures all gilded ran among the stones house leeks in flower empurpled the thatched roofs the toilers of the hives were out the bee was at work space was full of the murmur of seas and the humming of flies nature permeable to the springtime was moist with voluptuousness when gilead reached st sampson there was no water as yet at the head of the port and he could traverse it dry-shod unperceived behind the hulls of the vessels under repair a cordon of flat stones placed at regular intervals facilitated his passage gilead was not noticed the crowd was at the other end of the port near the entrance of les braves there his name was in every mouth 
They were talking so much about him that they paid no attention to him. Gilliatt passed by, concealed to some degree by the noise which he had created. From afar he beheld the paunch at the place where he had moored it, the smokestack of the engine between its four chains, a movement of carpenters at work, confused forms going and coming, and he heard the joyous and thundering voice of Thierry giving his orders. He plunged into the small lanes. There was no one behind Les Braves, all curiosity being in front. Gilliatt took the path which skirted the low wall of the garden. He halted in the corner where grew the wild mallow. Again he beheld the stone where he had sat. Again he saw the wooden bench where Deruchette had sat. He gazed at the center of the walk where he had seen the two shadows who had disappeared embrace. He set out again. He ascended the hill of the Chateau du Val, then redescended it and directed his course towards the Bû de la Rue. Houmet Paradis was deserted. His house was just as he had left it that morning after dressing to go to Saint-Pierre-Port. A window was open. Through this window the bagpipe could be seen hanging to a nail in the wall. On the table could be seen the small Bible given by way of thanks to Gilliatt by a stranger who was Ebenezer. The key was in the door. Gilliatt stepped up, laid his hand on that key, double-locked the door, put the key in his pocket, and walked off. He went, not in the direction of the land, but of the sea. He traversed his garden diagonally by the shortest path, with no precautions for the beds, but taking care, however, not to crush the sea-kale which he had planted there, because it was a favorite with Deruchette. He crossed the parapet and descended among the rocks. He began to follow, still following the long and narrow line of reefs which connected the Bulanerie with that great obelisk of granite in the middle of the sea, which is called the Beast's Horn. It was there that the chair of Guildhall-Ur was situated. He strode from one ridge of rocks to another like a giant on the crests of mountains taking such strides on a crest of reefs resembles walking on the ridge of a roof. A fisherwoman, who was prowling barefoot among the pools of water some distance off, and who was just coming on shore, called to him, "'Take care! The tide is rising!' He continued to advance. On reaching that great rock at the point, the horn, which formed a pinnacle in the sea, he halted. The land ended there, it was the extremity of the little promontory. He looked. In the offing a few boats were anchored and fishing. From time to time one could see silver dripping in streams in the sunlight, which indicated the drawing of the nets from the water. The Kashmir had not yet arrived opposite St. Sampson. She had spread her main topsail. She was between Erm and Jedou. Gilead turned the corner of the rock. He arrived under the chair of Guilde Olmurk at the foot of that sort of abrupt staircase which, less than three months previously, he had aided Ebenezer to descend. He ascended it. The greater part of the steps were already under water. Two or three only were still dry. He climbed them. These steps led to the chair Guilde Olmurk. 
He reached the chair, looked at it for a moment, covered his eyes with his hand and allowed it to glide slowly from one eyebrow to the other, a gesture by which one seems to wipe out the past. Then he seated himself in that hollow of the rock, with the cliff behind his back and the ocean under his feet. The Kashmir was at that moment coming abreast of the great round submerged tower, guarded by a sergeant and a cannon, which marks in the channel the halfway point between Erm and St. Pierre Port. Above Gilead's head, in the crevices, some rock flowers waved. The water was blue as far as the eye could reach. The wind being east, there was but little surf around Sark, of which only the western side is visible from Guernsey. France could be seen in the distance, like a mist, and the long yellow ribbon of the sands of Carteret. Now and then a white butterfly flitted past. Butterflies have a mania for flying over the sea. The breeze was very light. All that blue, below as well as above, was motionless. No quiver agitated those serpentine shapes of a pallor or darker azure which mark the concealed lines of the shoals on the surface of the sea. The Kashmir, which was but little aided by the wind, had hoisted her studding sails in order to catch the breeze. She was covered with canvas, but the wind being abeam, the studding sails compelled her to hug the coast of Guernsey very closely. She had passed the St. Sampson beacon. She reached the hill of the Chateau du Val. The moment was at hand when she would double the point of the Butte de la Rue. Gilliatt watched her approach. The air and the water seemed lulled to sleep. The tide was rising, not by waves, but by swelling. The level of the water rose without palpitation. The stifled sound of the open sea resembled the breathing of an infant. In the direction of the harbor of St. Sampson, small dull blows, blows of hammers, were heard. It was probably the carpenters preparing the tackle and gear for removing the engine from the boat. These sounds hardly reached Gilead because of the mass of granite against which his back was placed. The Kashmir approached with the slowness of a phantom. Gilead waited. All at once a rippling sound and a sensation of cold made him look down. The water touched his feet. He lowered his eyes, then raised them again. The Kashmir was quite close at hand. The cliff in which the rain had hollowed out the chair Gildolmur was so vertical, and the depth of water was so great there, that ships could, without danger, in calm weather, sail within a few cables' lengths of the rock. The Kashmir arrived. She rose up and seemed to grow out of the water. It was like the enlargement of a shadow. The rigging stood out black against the sky in the magnificent rocking of the sea. The long veils which had been thrown across the sun for a moment became almost rosy and assumed an ineffable transparency. The waves murmured indistinctly. Not a sound troubled the magnificent slipping along of this form. One could see all on deck as though one were there oneself. The Kashmir almost grazed the rock. The helmsman was at the rudder, a cabin boy was climbing the shrouds, several passengers, leaning on the bulwarks, were 
contemplating the serenity of the weather. The captain was smoking, but Gilead saw nothing of all this. On the deck there was one corner full of sunlight. It was on this point his eyes were fixed. In that sunlight were Ebenezer and Deruchette. They were seated close to each other. They were crouching down gracefully side by side, like two birds warming themselves in a ray of midday sun on one of those benches covered with a small tarred awning which well-ordered vessels offer to passengers, and upon which one reads, when the vessel is English, for ladies only. Deruchette's head was on Ebenezer's shoulder. Ebenezer's arm was passed around Deruchette's waist. They were holding each other's hands, fingers interlaced in fingers. The shades between one angel and another were discernible on those two exquisite faces formed of innocence. One was the more virginal, the other more star-like. Their chaste embrace was expressive. All of marriage was there, and also all purity. That seat was already an alcove, and almost a nest. At the same time it was a halo, the sweet halo of love fleeing in a cloud. The silence was celestial. Ebenezer's eyes returned thanks and contemplated. Deruchette's lips moved, and in that charming silence, as the wind was blowing on shore, at the rapid moment when the sloop was gliding past, a few fathoms from the chair Gildolmure, Gilead heard Deruchette's tender and delicate voice saying, Look, it seems as though there were a man on the rock. This apparition passed. The cashmere left the point of the Bue de la Rue behind her, and plunged into the deep ripples of the waves. In less than a quarter of an hour her masts and sails described upon the water only a sort of white obelisk growing ever smaller on the horizon. The water reached Gilead's knees. He watched the sloop sail away. The breeze freshened on the open sea. He could see the cashmere hoist her lower studding sails and staysails in order to profit by this increase of wind. The cashmere was already beyond the waters of Guernsey. Gilead never took his eyes from it. The water came to his waist. The tide was rising. Time was passing. The seagulls and cormorants flew uneasily around him. One would have said that they were seeking to warn him. Perhaps in those flocks of birds there was some seagull which had come from the Douvre and had recognized him. An hour elapsed. The wind from the open sea did not make itself felt in the roadstead, but the cashmere dwindled rapidly. From all appearances the sloop was going at full speed. She was already nearly abreast of the casquette. There was no foam around the rock of Gildolmur. No wave beat the granite. The water swelled peacefully. It had almost reached Gilead's shoulders. Another hour elapsed. The cashmere was now beyond the waters of Origny. The Ortac rock concealed her for a moment. She passed behind the rock, then came out again as from an eclipse. The sloop fled away to the north. She gained the open sea. She was nothing but a point now, with the scintillation of a light owing to the sun. The birds threw little cries at Gilead. Only his head was now visible. 
Gilead, motionless, watched the cashmere as she vanished. The tide was nearly full. Evening was drawing on. Behind Gilead in the roadstead some fishing boats were returning. Gilead's eye, fastened to the sloop in the distance, remained fixed. That fixed eye resembled nothing that can be seen upon earth. In that calm and tragic pupil there lay the inexpressible. That gaze contained the entire quantity of appeasement which an unrealized dream leaves. It was the melancholy acceptance of another's accomplishment. The flight of a star must be followed by similar looks. From moment to moment celestial darkness increased beneath those lids whose visual ray remained fixed upon a point in space. The immense tranquillity of the shadow rose in Gilead's deep eyes at the same time as the infinite water around the rock of Gildolumu. The cashmere, which had become invisible, was now a speck mingled with the mist. One needed to know where it was in order to be able to distinguish it. Little by little this speck, which was no longer a form, grew pale. Then it dwindled, then it disappeared. At the moment when the vessel vanished on the horizon, the head disappeared under water. There was nothing left but the sea. End of chapter 5 The Great Tomb and End of the Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo Read by John Greenman.